You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, Marketing Director for Studio 420. Guild Extracts is a craft extraction company based out of the San Francisco area and is known for its cutting-edge technology and innovative product development. I interviewed the CEO, Claudio Miranda, to learn about their patented extraction process, expansion plans, and how they're navigating the turbulent California market. There's a reason that Claudio was named among 100 influential people to watch by High Times Magazine. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you doing? So great to see you again. Yeah, likewise, <laughs> nice to see you again too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw that you guys did, uh, this looks so cool, I saw that you did the... Um, yeah, the yacht party. You, you invited uh, dispensaries, was that the whole idea? Like to come and ch- check out your product? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, so we've been throwing these for a while, for many years. Um, the yacht belongs to my business partner's family. They have like a yacht rental service, like you'd have like a limo rental service. Oh, so, perfect. So, so it's not like we're so rich at our company that we own a yacht. That's often- <laughs> Yeah, it looks pretty often, good. <laughs> yeah, that's often the misconception, but we basically, because it's owned by the family, we get to use it at cost. And yeah, and for us, it's a way of bringing uh, butt tenders and buyers on the retail side together with the brands to have a more intimate, like try our products, engage with the brand, meet the founders, um, which has been really great for us. Oh, that's, yeah. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? And then to be able to pitch your product in that situation is a that's that's a that's a coup <laughs> exactly and, and people always walk coup. away just oh this is amazing and and you know how it is a brand trying to get its samples out to many dispensaries sometimes they have to give all the buyers and it's cumbersome and expensive and in this case they all get to come to the boat and try it on like overlooking the bay and it's it's just it's it's great and meet each other to just share and network, like share their strategies and whatever, you know, products that they like and all that kind of stuff. So that's really cool. So actually, well, let's just start with uh, Guild Extracts, um, you know, kind of on a high level uh, of what the company is. Um, I believe you started it in 2015, who your partners are, what your initial vision is and, and where it is today. Just love an overview of. Okay. You know, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, it's it's a it's a fairly complicated story compared to many many other companies that maybe have a more simple kind of founding group with one singular vision. Um, in the case of Guild, you know, when we first started it, it was intended to be a vertically integrated family of cannabis brands that touched each major segment of the cannabis supply chain, meaning you know, genetics and seeds for starters, and then nursery. Uh, then cultivation, manufacturing, distribution, and retail. And so when we first started, when we first kind of built this platform, that was the thesis of it, is we wanted to um, align ourselves with the best, the best in class operators at each of those various segments in the value chain. And so for example, in the case of Guild Extracts, that was just one segment of the value chain, obviously the manufacturing segment. You know, when we started Guild, we decided, look, who can we find that that is you know the best extractors in the market that we can align with and if you kind of think about the word guild you know it's taken kind of from that medieval sense of the word guild of just like a guild of of artisans a guild of craftsmen which is bringing together you know a group of people in a specific class or trade that then share trade secrets and knowledge and know-how and in this case it's trying to bring in a certain group of craftspeople that are the best in class for that particular segment of the market. So with Guild Extracts, we said, well, who, who can we bring together that's gonna to be bringing the best of extraction know-how and expertise and craftsmanship? And so we partnered with a few people that then brought to life that vision. But we did the same thing on the retail side, we did the same thing on the more cultivation and breeding side. And so that was the, again, the original kind of thesis for Guild. Um, And Guild Extracts is the one that to this day continues as the strongest dimension of that. And I'm happy to kind of go back and talk to the various permutations over time. 
but really when you look at that initial stakeholder group, there was dozens of people involved because again, you had numerous operating companies across the value chain. Um, now, if you look at Guild Extract specifically, you know, we have a few founding members that kind of constitute um, Guild Extracts. My role within the whole organization is I was involved in developing the Guild brand and the market positioning and the strategic direction. So when I say we kind of were looking for people with ex like product expertise, if we were building the brand vision and strategic direction, then in each of those different classes, we were looking for someone who had the product knowledge and expertise that would complement the brand vision and strategic direction. So that, that's a little bit of the kind of the foundational elements that, uh, that gave birth to the company. So are you, so are you vertically integrated today? Um, we, we are not. So interestingly enough, you know, um, over the course of time, if you kind of follow the evolution of the California market from Prop 215 to Prop 64, there was a time when as the regulatory framework was developing for the state, um, there was a time when it was when it was called MRSA and there were some competing interests. And one of the primary interests was they wanted to keep uh, vertical integration from from existing within the industry. So there was a point at which our attorneys advised us. They said, look, the way that the regulatory framework is shaping up is that it looks like you're not going to be able to have more than a 5% interest in any specific license type. So if you had a primary interest, let's say in cultivation, that means that you cannot really have a significant stake in manufacturing or retail and vice versa. So they were, so the regulations were specifically developing in a way to break up and prohibit vertical integration. So that was one driving reason why we decided that, okay, this original vision of being vertically integrated might not work at this point of time and this point in time in California and that was coupled with other kind of channel conflicts that we began to experience. That if we own brands on one side and retail on the other, we started to see some incompatibility, at least within California, of maintaining brands on both ends of the spectrum. I'm happy to kind of elaborate on that, but it's those are just a couple of the reasons why over the course of time, we broke up that vertical integration and various companies spun off in different directions. Some never fully came into being. Um, and we decided, all right, well, Guild Extract seemed to be the, the segment in the business that, that, that had most traction and popularity. So we just doubled down on that, on that entity and ran with that. Right. Yeah. I would love to hear more about why um, you don't think it was compatible or it was conflicting. Sure. Because I've, I've been wondering if down the road, if a vertical integration is going to be a good thing or a bad thing. I kind of don't think yeah. it's a good thing, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, you know, so when I built a Guild Enterprises was really one of the main, was the main company that held um, the, um, that developed the brands, as I mentioned, and developed the brand strategy. And so I was effectively the CEO of that organization and, and still am to this day. Um, but the idea is that then we develop these brands and then license them out to various operators. And so at the time, you know, we were looking at the retail um, end of the spectrum. Um, I had had a separate company where we were incubating dispensaries. Um, and, and, and as an example, you know, one dispensary that we licensed the brand to was in San Jose. And at the time there was 16 dispensaries in San Jose. So one of them we licensed the Guild brand to, and they were called the Guild, right? Concurrently, we're developing Guild Extracts as a product brand and Guild Cannabis as a, as a consumer packaged good, as a product brand. What we found quickly was um, our product brands were becoming so popular and our store was so popular that the other 15 dispensaries in San Jose started to have a bias. They said, we don't want to carry the branded products that bear the Guild name because they were concerned that then those customers would would fall in love with the brand find out that there was a dispensary in the area that bore the brand name and then we would start to poach those customers mm. and so that's where we started to run into some of the channel conflicts is 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 on that account right um and so what we started to find was the markets that we started to have a retail presence with the brand started to kind of develop that bias 
for the product brands. And now I was starting to get heat on the brand side, on the consumer packaged goods side, saying, look, Claudio, the retail stores that are not bearing the Guild brand are starting to kind of develop that bias within those respective markets. And early on, we started to feel that. Now, it's interesting because fast forward five years to today, we see a few other brands that are doing that. Cookies being one of the main examples, Nug being another example. Cookies is a bit of an exception because they've got such a cultural draw with Burner and the music side of it. So I think they're able to transcend some of that because the brand is so strong and it's also an apparel brand. But well, but I wonder about some of the other brands that are doing this. And I think what we're finding is a lot of the vertically integrated companies that are doing what we originally envisioned to do are actually, um, the retails have different brand names than the actual product brand, that they're differentiating. And, and, and maybe to avoid that conflict, which we had to learn the hard way, became problematic from the beginning. And of course, our thesis was that, hey, Nike sells their stores in Nordstrom and they have their Nike store and they sell them at Foot Locker and they have their Nike stores. So do they experience these channel conflicts? Well, if your brand's strong enough to command that degree of consumer demand, then maybe you're not going to have as, as much of those uh, channel conflicts. In our case, it became a problem, which is, again, another driver of why we broke apart that vertical integration, at least under the Guild brand, we broke it up. Okay. So, um, you know, I've been trying to keep an eye on what's going on in California because, you know, you guys are really the forefront of the industry. Um, but with all the oversaturation regulations and tax laws, how, how are you battling that? Does it affect you? Um, and how have you differentiated yourself to be in business for so long? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Yeah, people are, um, <laughs> I mean, in the news, it seems like people are just dropping like flies. And, and, and they are, you know, it's sad. You know, I've, I've been in cannabis for, for, for decades. Um, so really, I've been tracking the market from the, from the very first brands that came into being. Um, and, and it's been sad to see that, that if you rewind five, 10 years ago, the brands that you would see at a given conference at the, at, at, at the you know, lost, you know, at MJ BizCon all the way through, let's say High Times Cup or those kind of consumer events, the, the branding landscape has changed like 98%, right? You see, you see very few brands that, that were the main brands then um, existing today within those environments. And so there's been a sea change in the industry. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's been really hard. I think at the end of the day, the, the hardest kind of factors is, is you know, things like taxation and, and compliance. And, and I think that's what's the most oppressive sides of the industry that we all uniformly have to deal with. A lot of folks just think that maybe it's uh, the legacy guys or the smaller farmers that are taking all the hits. And they certainly are taking a disproportional amount of the hits, one could argue. But everyone across the ecosystem right now is suffering, especially on the plant touching side because yeah. of things like oppressive taxation, compliance, et cetera, as well as you know the imbalance between the number of retail licenses to, to brand uh, related licenses, cultivation and manufacturing. So, so, so how have we survived that? Um, well, barely, I should say, you know, we've definitely had high points in our history and low points and high points. And we, like a lot of different brands have had our ups and downs. Um, we are alive and well today, and I'm happy to kind of say that. And one thing that I think, a couple things that have, I think, um, protected us and ensured our longevity well, first and foremost, it's, you know, substance. You know, we are a substantive brand. We have a substantive value proposition. We are a legacy brand that hinges its value primarily on, on, on strength of product, right? Mm -hmm. And I say that as opposed to a company that's just pure marketing veneer, that they're taking any old, let's say, flower and slapping a brand on it and putting a lot of sales and marketing budget behind that and trying to push that through retail doors that's not sustainable. That does not have longevity. And we've seen that proven out. We've seen a lot of very well capitalized companies and brands enter the marketplace that don't have a substantive differentiated value proposition that are a flash in the pan. Literally, they'll be the, the, you know, the, the primary sponsor at all the events one year and the next year they're, they're literally just gone. Um, so I think we've had staying power because on the one hand, as I mentioned, you know, we, we have always stood for product excellence and being grounded in, in, um, 
and paying respect uh, to our to our roots in the cannabis industry. And I think a lot of people within the industry respect us and we have credibility for um, for the way that we've stayed true to our colors, in other words, and have held on to uh, the standard of product excellence and what we do. So that's kind of one big part of it, um, that there's no marketing veneer there, there's substance. Um, secondly, and I think as importantly, is you know we have um, a strong IP portfolio. We have patents um, that have been federally granted patents on our extraction methods. They, um, the types of products that we make through our extraction methods, things like THCA powder, high terpene extract, also known as HTE, and its various derivatives. Um, those are all things that, um, that, that um, are derived from the use of our uh, process patents. And just like with any other industry, if you look at tech or various other industries, pharma, you name it, oftentimes IP is the moat, the moat that protects the business. And in this case, our IP has been another key factor that has um, lent itself to our staying power in the marketplace. Wow, so you have IP on your uh, extraction process. That's correct. I guess I just thought there were you know, hydrocarbon, you know, CO2 and vapor extraction methods. Is it something else besides yes. that that you're, or like? Yeah, so there's a couple things there. So, so you're right, the main categories are types of extraction, as you mentioned, there could be ethanol, there could be CO2, there could be hydrocarbon, solventless, various types of solventless uh, based extraction methods. Those are the broad categories, right? But within each one, the swim lane we're in is hydrocarbon based extraction. There's, a, there's several ways to skin that cat. There isn't just kind of one main way of doing hydrocarbon extraction. There's a lot of techniques, a lot of nuances for how you could go through the hydrocarbon extraction process on a, on a main extraction, mm. as well as post-processing. Our patents mostly govern the post-processing methods where once you go through the primary extraction, you end up with kind of a crude extract then you want to refine it into more um, attractive consumer products, more unique consumer products, which can also include isolating cannabinoids and terpenes. Um, that's where our patents come into play. And there's a lot of utility for that and, and appeal, not only for the type of consumer products that you can make, things like our THCA powder and our THCA crystalline um, have, have had a lot of popularity on the consumer side, but also on the B2B side, on the back end of things, there's a lot of manufacturers uh, that gain a lot of value from those isolated cannabinoids, those isolated terpenes, how they use them in infused products, how they recombine them to create unique formulations. So there's a lot of uh, mechanics behind the scenes for how our patents can be utilized to benefit both sides of that spectrum, both the consumer marketing side, as well as uh, the B2B kind of manufacturing side. Of and as time goes on, and as we learn more about the benefits of uh, terpenes and um, different cannabinoids, that's only gonna become more in demand. So uh, whatever your process is to, to actually capture them safely without destroying them is a huge, huge deal. So absolutely. And not only that, but it lends itself to standardization as well. So and that's, I think, really important looking forward for things like MSOs and whatnot that that want to have a consistent brand experience across multiple jurisdictions, yes. standardizing and normalizing that user experience, having a predictable user experience yeah. um, is really, really key in all their formulations. And I, I think right now a lot of people are just starting to discover that, that, well, how do you really do that? Well, there's a lot of, you know, proprietary techniques that are gonna lend themselves to, uh, to creating those desired outcomes more than others. And we just happen to have the patents on, I think some of the strongest um, methods that one can use for that. And that, by the way, you know, going back to your first question is another dimension of our staying power in the market. Because even though like on the consumer side where we've seen a lot of challenges on, on the CPG side, um, we've been able to diversify and be able to have, you know, license our tech. We're able to wholesale products that are uh, uh, yielded from our technology. And that's enabled us to, you know, seek out other revenue streams. So we're able to kind of diversify our revenue streams. So if the consumer brand maybe wasn't getting as much traction in a certain time, we're able to kind of lean on some of the other revenue streams and ways of monetizing our IP. 
um, and we've been able to kind of balance that portfolio and those revenue channels to kind of subsist and, and subside within the, uh, the marketplace. To meet where there where the demand is. So, so does the exactly. does it does that mean that your patent is on the actual equipment, on the machine, or the like? Is it a I guess that would have to be it as a machine of some sort. Well, it's a process patent. Um, it, it, you're you're correct that there is equipment involved. That in order to exercise our patents, there is unique equipment that must be utilized um, as part of the process. But technically speaking, it's a process patent. Okay. So it shows a method um, of, of of doing uh, uh, post processing um, of hydrocarbon extracts. Okay, and. Um... You mentioned the was it HDE or H the HTE high terpene extract. Oh, high terpene. Uh, so I haven't heard that. So how do you turn that into a product? Yeah, well, without getting too technical about it, um, um, it, it's it's very often used these days in in a vaporizer cartridges. Um, that you know when it comes to vape cartridges the most popular type of cartridges is you can have like a straight co2 cartridge or a distillate cartridge where the goal of the cartridge is to optimize for the most potency per gram right and so you're just you're, you're getting a distillate card that's 90 plus percent potency and people are looking to just get as high as possible off the cartridge without really um, without really optimizing, let's say, for flavor or aromatics, right? And in the case of a lot of those cartridges, they reintroduce terpenes. Sometimes in the cheaper carts, it could be botanical terpenes or hemp-derived terpenes. Um, in the higher-end carts like ours, there'll be cannabis-derived terpenes. But the, that's kind of one end of the spectrum is where you got a very kind of commodity product like, a, like distillate or, 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 or CO2 extract that goes into a cartridge, right? Um, in the case of high terpene extract, it's actually a full spectrum. It's uh, it's it's not exactly the same, but it's what in the market this this whole side of the spectrum are things like your sauce cartridges, your live resin cartridges, your full spectrum cartridges. What you're dealing with there is um, a full spectrum um, extract that isn't just delta nine THC. It contains all the uh, it contains the whole cannabinoid family that would have been derived from uh, the strain uh, that you extracted, provided that mm. you're able to preserve them, as well as the terpene and flavonoid profile. Right. So you're getting a full spectrum product that, again, isn't just isolating and optimizing for Delta 9 THC. And so our high terpene extract is an example of that, that you're getting the broad spectrum of terpenes and other minor cannabinoids within um, within that output. Okay. And um, I heard somebody at the show, actually, that I was talking to an extractor, um, and he's from the West Coast. He was saying that solventless, the solventless extraction process is, is uh, becoming more and more popular and kind of leading the pack. Do you, do you agree with that? Um, I, I do and I don't. I, I do as it relates to connoisseurship and consumer appeal, absolutely. That people who really um, want to spend the kind of the most money when, when they're a little bit more price insensitive and want to optimize for quality and the very best product you can smoke, definitely solventless is the way to go. That's what he was talking about. Absolutely, uh, no question about it. Um, now that being said, the vast majority of the market though, of the concentrates that are being made and sold, whether they're being sold as concentrates or cartridges or being infused into all the other infused product um, uh, types of products, whether they're beverages, edibles, et cetera, um, most of those are solvent-based extracts. So if you actually were to you know, do some data analysis and look at all the revenue that's coming into the industry that uh, that is non-flower or pre-roll, that's basically everything that's that's uh, that's manufactured, so to speak, right? You're going to find that a very small percentage of it is actually solventless versus a solvent-based extract. So mm -hmm. there's so so that would argue then that the popularity is actually on the solvent-based extract because that's where the primary revenue and demand is being generated. Um, but there again, it's the question of like Budweiser versus having like a very high-end craft beer. And there's certainly greater popularity and connoisseurship around the craft beer, but the volume sales are in the Budweiser, right? You also have to wonder, you know, most of the population is not educated on all this. You know, they're just trying to wrap their heads around what's going on. But when you start digging into the, what the technology behind it and all that, maybe, maybe it'll change. But 
you're right, Budweiser versus, you know, it's probably yeah. more. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it, it also depends on what you're solving for as a consumer, right? Some products just don't lend themselves to it. Like, for example, if I'm just trying to um, eat an edible, right? I just want to have a gummy, for example, or I want to have a beverage, and I'm just looking for a certain effect profile versus a flavor and aromatics profile, right? So I think we're solventless. Again, as I think um, the key use case there is for people who want to optimize for flavor, aromatics, full spectrum experience. And that's kind of one thing. And the analogy I like to use is like, it's like alcohol, right? If you want to have a full, um, a full sensory experience, you might drink a really fine wine, right? That was handcrafted and made with the finest grapes and by winemakers who really hone in their craft, right? If you're optimizing just to get drunk, and maybe yeah. you're just going to go with, with malt liquor that's been put in a can indiscriminately at the lowest price, you know, per, mil per milliliter, right? And so are you looking to get drunk and, and just kind of solve for that or, or have some effect that you're striving for? Or are you looking for a full sensory connoisseurship experience? Mm -hmm. And there's no right or wrong answer there. There's just different use right. cases, different demographics, different type of consumer preferences. And the good news is that there's something for everyone there. Um, so yeah. No. Yeah, oh, great. That's just a great way to, to, to describe all that. And, and then I forgot to ask you at the beginning, um, you were mentioning that you've been in, um, in the cannabis business for decades. Where did that yes. start? How did, and also coming from the Oakland area, that's where you're in Oakland, right? Or San Francisco area. I mean, that's yeah. kind of like the birth up there, really. It just seems like everything yes. came out of there. <laughs> Definitely. Well, you know, I've, I've been in it to be precise since the mid 80s. Um, and, um, you know, I was just, I grew up in the mid 80s, uh, a teenager, uh, you know, in LA, and I was born in Hollywood, raised in LA. Oh, okay. And then my family ended up moving to Orange County. So I split my time between LA and Orange County, depending on, on what year. Um, but growing up in LA in the 80s, for anyone who kind of went through what I went through, like that was the age of sex, drugs, rock and roll. Like, like all as far as me and all my friends, yes, as far as me and my friends were concerned and the broader group of people that at least I observed, um, you know, we were all partying at that time. Um, and cannabis was was part of our daily ritual. So as, you know, whether I was in junior high, high school, cannabis was, was a key part of our, of our life and our culture. Yeah. And, you know, and during those years, I got into the kind of business of it. Um, so I started kind of very young um, as a teenager. Um, I got at that time turned on to the Grateful Dead and, got it <laughs> and started to kind of, I joined that bandwagon. And if for those of you who have ever been kind of the, to a Grateful Dead show, you know, cannabis is just kind of the, uh, the underlying kind of uh, um, experience that you have there. You can't go to a Grateful Dead show without cannabis. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so just since I was a, a very young, um, you know, teenager again, um, it's been a, a, just a key part of my life and, and my kind of the, the, the cultural kind of zeitgeist that I was involved in. And that was for a good 10 years, all the way through going to college. I moved up here to the Bay Area to Oakland, Berkeley, to go to UC Berkeley um, in the mid nineties. And I, I paid my way through school by, you know, basically cultivating, mm -hmm. um, in Berkeley. And so I had a good 10 years of cannabis experience. Wow. Um, and I, cultivating. Time, yeah. And even cultivating, um, up until the time I graduated. And then upon graduation, I got into tech and basically left cannabis for about 15 years mm. and then found my way back to it around 2013, 14 is when I began to like look at the legal markets and start to dab, you know, d dabble in that. And that's what led to Guild and some of the other dispensaries that I referenced. Oh, cool. Did, um, did California, uh, was they, were they medical first? I, I guess everybody, yes. right. And when did that happen? Um, that was, I mean, the whole medical program started, I mean, it, it, there's a really rich and interesting history there, but that's from the mid nineties around the time that I landed at UC Berkeley is when that was, that whole market was forming with compassionate care act mm. and uh, the whole medical side of cannabis and that whole kind of paradigm of having, um, your, um, oh boy, I'm, I'm losing the words for it right now when you would have your, um, your membership base of your patients. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, that was what was going on there. And, that, and that's been happening since the mid nineties, at least for that particular um, set of kind of uh, laws that were put into effect on the local level here. Um, 
So yeah, it's been going on since then. But the thing is that even throughout that period of time in the mid to late nineties and into the early two thousands, it was still a pretty gray area, you know, and it was very, it was, it was regulated, um, you know, by, by local jurisdiction to local jurisdiction. So the state program, the statewide program didn't actually go into effect until 2018 where there was a, where there was a state regulatory framework that actually licensed cannabis companies. Prior to 2018, it was all managed on the city level. Oh, okay. And 2015 is when it went wreck? Or? Um, 2018 is it when it went wreck. It was oh. passed into, yeah, it was passed into law, I believe, in 2016, I believe, if I get my history right here. Okay. Um, so all the legislative kind of maneuvering happened uh, in, in the, all those years leading up to it, but it actually, the first date that it went into effect was January of 2018 um, is when the whole licensing program kind of started, which was interesting kind of going back to the, your very first questions, you know, that if you followed companies like Guild Extracts where we had been steeped in the Prop 215 era, you know, we were, you know, rapidly increasing in revenue from 15 to 16 to 17. And what you'll see is if you look at the graph of most companies like ours, probably almost all of them, you'll see the revenue increasing, increasing, increasing up until that inflection point of the turn of the year from 17 to 18. And then all of a sudden, all of our revenue dropped because the market essentially was completely, there's a hard reset on the whole industry. Mm-hmm. Now in order to continue doing business, you had to get licenses. There was a lot of delays in getting those licenses, depending on which city you were operating. Many cities didn't get their act together as far as issuing licenses till much later in the year, maybe even subsequent years. The LA market imploded. I mean, there used to be at the time, depending on who's counting, there was three, 4,000 retail outlets in California. And in 2018, that shrunk down to three to 400. So the market shrank to almost 10% of what it was one year prior to, then to the next. And so that was a big hard reset for a lot of us. And so our revenue, it's like we almost had to like a boulder came rolling back down the hill. And there we were at the beginning of 18, having to roll that boulder right back up that hill. And a lot of people just got wiped out in that in that step alone because of the fees and the, just having to get yourself reset up in the right. And that exactly. I mean, the only continuity would just be your brand, right? Your, I was going to say be, you must yeah. have a little bit of that um, advantage by having been around, you know, right from the beginning, first mover kind of advantage. Do you feel that? Yes. Yeah, so there's definitely that. And don't get me wrong, those people like like my company, for example, there was first mover advantage. There were some other companies that had much greater advantages and head starts than we did in the market that maybe uh, a, a larger operating footprint. Um, so a lot of those legacy companies were able to have continuity, but even, even the most successful ones had major setbacks in that turn from 17 to 18, no doubt about it. Mm, wow, interesting. So, um, what what are the most popular products, like methods of consumption, that you, in, you know, from Guild Extracts? Where do, where is the the most yep. demand? Yeah, well, look, I mean, this kind of goes back to some of our patents and our patented process. I think um, the answer to that is time based. Certainly, when you know, for the first several years of our existence, um, our THCA crystalline and our THCA powder. Um, were the most popular products. They were arguably the, some of the most popular products in the entire concentrates market in California. We had mass consumer demand. At that time, our biggest problem was keeping up with demand. We just couldn't oh. products fast enough. Um, and those were good old days, right? When yeah. you couldn't make products fast enough. It's like literally, it, it, was, it, it was quite a time. Um, and one of the reasons why they were so popular, and this was kind of one of the keys to our innovation, is we effectively created the world's strongest hash, right? So our THCA crystalline is 99.99% pure THCA. And so- the acid part of- Yes, which is the acidic version. And so you decarb it and then you lose a few percentages. So you're, you're actually then smoking something that's a few percentages less of THC, but it's still the most potent concentrate that was ever made. And if you think about concentrate, broadly speaking of hash or anything that's that's a concentrated form of like extracted cannabis, um, we, Guild Extracts basically will go down in, in, in history as making 
the strongest uh, concentrate ever known to man. Um, We essentially won the race to the top in some ways by doing that. And, and, and we not only did that, but we, uh, we, we, we created, we innovated on that and built patents and IP around that technology. And we got a lot of uh, notoriety and a lot of attention, a lot of publicity surrounding that. So when we would go to cannabis events, there would be just lines. We would have a constant flow of customers, patients at the time, wanting to buy our products. And so that by far is kind of our legacy, is what we've been known for, are those signature products, THCA powder and THCA crystalline. And on the other hand, with that high terpene extract that I referred to, we were able to make highly aromatic, flavorful, flavorful concentrates that then people who are more like the solventless customer today that wanted that full aromatic and flavor experience wasn't necessarily optimizing for the highest potency, but more so the greatest total effect from their cannabis usage. Um, that was also a very popular product of ours and its various permutations. Um, so we just had made a lot of really cool products that people loved and we were some of the first to market to make them in California. Um, along with other extract brands. We were by no, by no means the only ones, but we were amongst a group of extractors that were first to bring these products to market. And certainly with Crystalline and ACA, we were the first. Um, so anyway, that, that was then. Today, those products to this day remain very popular um, as far as amongst our, our customer base. Um, we also have cartridges now. That's something that we didn't have back in the day. We were putting this full spectrum high terpene extract um, a product into a cartridge and people just love that um, right now it's just flying off the shelves in certain wow. markets are popular. Um, so it's a combination between our concentrates and our cartridges. and yeah. how do you how do you consume the uh, THCA is that you have to smoke yeah. it I mean you have to heat it yeah you, you vaporize it you vaporize oh. it through a, through a dabbing device um, yeah. and you know a dab break as it were or anything like even more consumer friendly like a puff co. Um, so you dab it at high temperatures, you vaporize it essentially. Okay. Um, and it's extremely potent. I mean, just to, to be honest, I rarely smoke it because the potency of it in those high in the, the 90 percentile, wow. um, for me, it's not functional. Let's put it that way. Okay. Wow. Okay. I get it. Yeah. Well, it's potency in that case. I mean, these are both, um, very powerful anti-inflammatories. Oh. So they basically, they're, I mean, the case of THCA, you know, we did some research studies with UC Irvine where they found that it was orders of magnitude more, uh, greater efficacy than corticosteroids, as an example, um, in, in managing inflammation. And so, you know, that, that, that's why you're seeing a lot of the kind of sports world, the NFL, for example, mm. actively looking at cannabis and specifically things like THCA, because it's anti-inflammatory properties. Um, highly effective. I think we're going to continue to see a lot of incredible research and development there in, uh, on the university level, as well as the private sector. Uh, just you, you'll see there's going to be a lot of breakthroughs there. And, you know, we're excited because we were on the forefront of developing a lot of that tech. Yes, that's so exciting. Wow. You guys are very impressive. Um, so I imagine your audience is uh, your target market has got to be on the younger side, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, here again, it depends on the type of products. That's one of the reasons we diversified into vaporizer uh, cartridges, right? So you're absolutely correct when it comes to dabbing and and dabbing high potency concentrates. Um, absolutely, the demographic skew toward younger males. Certainly not exclusive to that. We're finding increasing percentages of women that are using dabs. I mean, and and you got to remember too, that a lot of the data is just from point of sale data, for example. So even though it's young males buying it, you don't never know what's happening behind the scenes. You know, that's just whatever data we're capturing. But absolutely, look, I could tell you firsthand anecdotally, going to a lot of the various cannabis events we go to, it's, it's it, at least historically, it was a lot of young males. And there's some intersection around like gamers and oh. people of of you know, that demographic right now that changed that evolved over time and again we're we're seeing increasing balancing between men and women uh, but certainly younger demographics is where you're finding the highest concentration of concentrate users right mm-hmm. now for us then um in cartridges is a is, is a different demographic right you're seeing a little bit um 
a, a more diverse audience, still young audience. We're seeing a lot of adoption within Gen Z. We're seeing a lot of adoption within women. And I think at, at more rapid rates than we're seeing concentrates. Mm -hmm. And so depending, so for us, it was starting to diversify our product strategy. So we weren't so pigeonholed in just the hardcore concentrate, kind of the backpacker as we call them, um, and trying to reach more accessible audiences. Um, one last thing I'll say about that is when you marry concentrates with flour, what's really popular now is the infused pre-roll. And so remember, you know, when, when we say concentrates, you can take it in its purest form as a concentrate that you dab, but then you can also get a concentrated product in a cartridge, which is much more user-friendly, much more frictionless, that tends to be more accessible for broader, you know, demographics, new recreational customers. And then even more so, you get a joint, a pre-roll, that's infused with some type of concentrate. And that's also very accessible, very user-friendly. You're seeing newer demographics adopt those types of products, which is why we've seen so much growth in revenue and kind of revenue contribution across the industry to things like pre-rolls and cartridges. So, um, so our products can essentially be applicable to all those categories, although we're mainly known for concentrates. Mm -hmm. So, so you're not introducing, uh, you don't have pre-rolls in your, in your lineup. We, we don't, um, we've done on occasion, we've done what's called collabs or collaborations where we've worked with certain farms and we'll couple our THCA powder, we'll infuse it into a pre-roll. Oh. Off and on, we have sold that, and we used to do that things in some of the High Times cups, and they were very, very popular. The thing is, is that, you know, that's not an in-house um, strength of ours, is handling flour, doing pre-rolls, and putting out those types of products. So in some ways, we want to just kind of stick with our swim lane of, of yeah. concentrates Good. and cartridges. Um, but it's something we've dabbled in a lot and, and are looking toward the future to be doing more of. Right, I, yeah, I've been looking at the um, infused pre-rolls and um, just at the show also, just seeing how everyone's doing it and what the problems are and the challenges of manufacturing them and the cost. Um, you know, it seems very labor intensive. I've heard people are saying that um, it gums up. It's hard to get it, say if they're using rosin, you know, an even um, line. Yeah. Yeah, all the way through, and and I guess you have to. Someone was just telling me you have to have the airflow in there, I guess, for it to burn properly. Um, That's right. And, and and I guess it's just not burning well. Like yeah, well, it, well it's funny you say that because not to kind of toot our own horn here, but the, our THCA powder, this product that we kind of innovated, is in my opinion, in our opinion, the best uh, concentrate to infuse in pre rolls. Because if you look at it, it has the consistency of like Parmesan cheese, right? So if you ever get finely grated Parmesan cheese and you sprinkle it over pasta or a salad, right? It, 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 it easily blends and integrates into whatever you're, you're, you're making, you're using it on, right? So it's like a, we call it like a condiment, right? right. And so um, our THCA powder, it's not only like Parmesan cheese and that it's, it's also dry, right? It's not as gummy, it's not as sticky. It's just a dry powdery type substance that you can get a little pinch of, you can sprinkle it in with your flour, whether you're rolling a joint or, or mixing a bowl or whatever. Um, it's very easily infused. It kind of homogenizes or blends well, doesn't gum up. And the other problem that you're kind of alluding to is a lot of joints run because it tends to stick to just one side or yeah. gum up in one area, then that's how a joint will run. Whereas our THCA powder in the experiments we ran with and some of the brands we've worked with on a collaboration, say that it just it blends most evenly and burns most evenly. Mm. So we're getting a lot of popularity from folks that want to buy it bulk from us because they're 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 discovering it's best for infusion. It would be a good uh, it would be good to focus on in your sales because honestly everybody I've been meeting at the show everybody's trying to figure out how to do their infused pre-rolls and I did meet one company that's using hash and it's blended in and I was wondering also so I guess dried up hash crumpled in there I guess but I was also wondering yeah how would that how do you blend a batch so it's blended in there not clumped up or but it sounds like you have the solution to that I don't know maybe they have the solution to the hash part too but well, there's a few ways to skin that cat, so I won't argue that ours is the only way of doing it. Some people dip it in distillate and roll it in keef, and there's ways to try to get a little bit more homogenized and, 
and burn um, evenly. And I think there's a there's a lot of great products in the market yeah, that there are that I've tried that that are that have solved it in various ways. Um, I just love the THCA because it, it, it also the THCA doesn't it's not very strong, right? It doesn't have a very strong personality, so to speak, um, because it only has a little bit of terpene. So it also lets the flower shine. It only blends in seamlessly, but it lets you know the flower take the main stage, and it acts again more like oh, a tonic. Nice. It's like you're not gonna eat a hot dog and put so much mustard on it that you're only tasting the mustard. Yeah. So you just put a little bit on it, so it just it's accentuating and complementing your hot dog, not overpowering it. And I think our THCA serves a similar um, role as a condiment, not something that's competing with the flour itself. Okay. Last two questions. Um... What is your approach to R&D? Are you coming out with some new things? Are you going to venture out into different areas? Like you said, you added on the vapes and, you know, what do you, what do you see in the market that you want to kind of go after, but stay in your lane, like you were saying? Yeah, for sure. Well, look, um, well, yeah, well, look, innovation is, I think, you know, I, I think that, as I mentioned at the beginning, has been our staying power. You know, we're, we're always on the front lines of that. Um, you know, one latest development at our company is, you know, we've, we've partnered with one of the largest manufacturers within the state of California, um, and, and, and we complement each other really well because they really built for scalability. They have a lot of horsepower. They have a lot more resources than we do in terms of being able to get the equipment and things like that. But what we have is the know-how, the technology, the patents, and so we've married those two together. And, and so it's benefited them in great ways because what our patents do is gives them a lot more scalability in what and how they're making certain products. And what it gives us is scalability in terms of now we're able to make, apply our techniques at scale, right? It also now lets us use a broad range of other types of equipment and other ingredients for to kind of simplify it to make a variety of other products. So as an example, you know, we haven't done much in the way of using some of our um, products as ingredients for making things like beverages, like nano emulsifying, or using it for edibles or, or, or doing things along those lines. We've always experimented with that, but we've never been in a position where we can really kind of lean into the R&D side of how things like our THCA, for example, can be used as an ingredient or a whole host of manufactured infused products. And what we're finding is that it, it is, again, in our view, a superior ingredient in that regard. I think some of the challenges there is that it tends to be a little bit more expensive, that right now things like distillate, which is a common ingredient used in, in manufactured infused products, you can right now get it at, at rock bottom prices. Mm. It's really that that market has bottomed out in pricing. Yeah. So if a manufacturer could, if, a, if an edible brand can buy distillate at, at two bucks a gram or less, yeah. and then they're you know, a THCA, because it's a higher quality product at, at, let's say, twice that, for example, then in these uncertain economic times where there's so much race to the bottom and people have to really optimize their cost of goods, um, I think they have to just unfortunately go with the cheapest possible ingredient. Yeah. But to me, that's more of a sign of where the market's at right now. I think as the market develops and we move away from this like hyper race to the bottom, just make the cheapest products possible, and as an industry, we can lean more toward, again, toward connoisseurship and craftsmanship, mm. then just like any other industry, people will choose to use better ingredients. We don't all have to be McDonald's, in other words. Yeah. We can be Michelin-starred restaurants, or we can be restaurants along the spectrum of quality. It's just that right now, it's very lopsided. Everyone's going to the fast food version of our industry for better or for worse, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think our ingredients and our R&D is gonna really start to shine once we can get back to high quality craftsmanship in what we do in the cannabis industry, um, we'll be positioned really well as that market reopens. The pendulum has just swung toward, toward McDonald's of cannabis, unfortunately, for the time being. So we're waiting this one out. <laughs> well, okay, so the last question is, um, do you have any expansion plans to go out of state? Yes. Well, I mean, yeah, well, just based on everything that I'm saying is that there is high demand for the type of technology that we've developed. Um, the interesting thing is, is that there's, there's people already in other states using our tech and it's an, you know, it's it, it kind of, it's an interesting crossroads because we've developed um, the technology in, in these specific areas. We've, we've been granted the patents 
And just like with any other industry, right? If you're in the pharmaceutical industry, what do you start to do? You start to enforce those patents, right? We, because, you know, in the cannabis industry, we, we like to view this as a community. We'd rather collaborate with people, develop partnerships, help MSOs, let's say, refine their techniques. We've already started to do that with several groups in California. I'm in conversation with several groups in other states that, that want to take a more collaborative approach to utilizing our technology to improve their processes and bring our types of products and expertise to a market near them. And those conversations are happening right now, and I'm really excited about that. It just Again, the market is so tumultuous right now that, that is that a front burner kind of a thing for a lot of companies right now as opposed to surviving. Yeah, right? yeah, seriously. So, so, so is, yeah. is that a licensing agreement then? Or I mean, it's a, it's a licensing agreement. Yeah, so okay. we've entered into um, a several patent licensing agreements already. Um, and, and that's something that we're pursuing. I mean, that's as I mentioned earlier with various revenue streams, you know, we can start to look at licensing our patents and then our brand along with it, right? Because to the degree, the brand coupled with the secret sauce, right? Um, has those two in combination. There's other markets that might have demand for that combo, then great. But we can also break those apart and just do the patent licensing alone. Um, but you know, that, that in, its, in, in and of itself takes time and resources to develop that market. You know, just just one last note on that, you know, we started to do that years ago and we found a lot of interest. We literally found operators in every state and Canada wanting to license our tech. What we found, though, is that we we're trying to plant a flag on quicksand, right, that these operators just were not stable. And, and, and now looking back at those days, how do we sign licensing agreements? Nine out of 10 of those companies are now out of business. Mm. So it's also a function of just a really nascent market that you've got to be strategic. If you're going to spend time and effort and resources developing new markets and flying out and teaching them know-how, you want to make sure that there's staying power there, that these are companies that are going to be around for several years and you're going to get an ROI from that endeavor, right? And and it's been tough to do that over the last several years. Wow, good point. That is a great point. Yeah, it, it's very tough. It's, it's a big balance out there. A big part of it is timing, right? Yeah. And, and the time is has been pretty bad the last few years and as of today but there's going to be a point any day now where those where with the tides shift yeah and the next big wave starts to form some can argue that wave is forming now yeah. and so are you paddling toward that wave as it's forming or is it still too choppy and you're going to get on some little wave that's not going to take you anywhere yeah a lot of people are getting crushed by very small waves <laughs> yeah yeah wow all right well anyway <laughs> so good seeing you again, and, and we'll be in touch. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.